Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard a Captain's Mindset podcast where we believe that everyone has the potential to become the captain of their own life. I'm your host, Kyle Freiberger, and after spending the majority of my life in the pursuit of becoming an airline captain, I realized that true happiness and satisfaction came from something much deeper than career success. At the age of 34, I took a leap of faith, left my perfect job to become an entrepreneur. This podcast is my way of helping people who feel stuck in life or even those who have achieved success but still feel unfulfilled. Together, we'll explore how to become the captain of your own life and a better leader for the people around you. I'm not perfect and I don't pretend to be. That's why this podcast is filled not only with my life lessons, but also with insights from other successful leaders in business and in everyday life. My goal is to help you unlock your potential and create a positive impact on the world around you. So buckle up and get ready to take control of your life. If you find value in this podcast, please subscribe and share it with other like-minded individuals. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode of a Captain's Mindset Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Captain's Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with an airline captain, a true leader in his field over uh, two decades in experience in aviation and uh, among other things, uh, Mr. Matt Hogan. Matt, thanks for joining us Great today. Great to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I'm sure we're going to dive into a few different areas of conversation, but you know, right off the get-go, what what got you into becoming an airline pilot? What, what made you decide to become an airline pilot? Well, I think a lot of uh, people who get into the industry – uh, from a young age, you know, have uh, a motivation to become a pilot. And I, I think I think everyone is quite intrigued by what goes on behind nowadays, behind that uh, that door to the flight deck. We were lucky enough uh, as children to be able to, uh, to visit with the pilots and see what was going on. And just the idea of traveling and seeing the world and uh, being in a dynamic work environment uh, was always intriguing as opposed to working the traditional nine to five job where it's the same office every day. I mean, I, in essence, it is the same office on the short term, but we're, we're lucky enough to do different routes and uh, different aircraft. And I always thought uh, all that change would be uh, an exciting career. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's a, the same office, but it's a moving view. Yes. It's like, it's probably the view that like people would pay like millions and millions and millions of dollars for it. It's, it's a, if you're in an office building and your view just kept changing the way it does uh, when you're when you're flying an airplane, it man, it, it definitely is uh, it's something to see. So awesome. Um, what uh, you know? Tell us a little bit about your your career progression, if you don't mind, kind of where you're at now, and uh, and just some of the things that that guided you along the way, and and uh, we'll get into kind of the leadership side of things. But yeah, just give us a little overview of, of where you started and where you are now. Okay, well, quick overview. Um, I completed a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of British Columbia. And I had some practical uh, experience in the business world. And again, the, the nine to five just wasn't, uh, wasn't doing it for me. And uh, I was lucky enough to take an economics course at UBC with some airline pilots got talking with them about the industry. One of the professors there was also uh, uh, worked for UPS, did some uh, study work for UPS. He encouraged me as well. And uh, from there, as you know, it's just a matter of 
of training and really getting into the practical world. In, uh, interesting side note is that um, one of the chief pilots at Air Canada now was one of my uh, initial instructors that I ever stepped into an aircraft <laughs> with. So it's a it's a small world in the Canadian aviation world. And uh, from there, it was really just adventure. I mean, as you know, Kyle, early in your career uh, in the industry prior to 2000, uh, there really wasn't as much going on out there and you really had to hustle and kind of take whatever you were given in order to gain uh, experience. Uh, and generally in Canada, you go sort of one or two paths. You go down the, the military route or you go the civilian route on the smaller aircraft and generally that involves either going through uh, the instructor ranks or else you're going to head, uh, head up north somewhere uh, into uh, the hinterland of Canada, and you're going to get into uh, cargo passenger or uh, medevac. And just just through uh, just through luck, uh, I ended up into air ambulance, and then I ended up doing uh, about four and a half years up in northern Canada, so northern Manitoba, Nunavut, and then eventually got onto a Learjet uh, based out of Montreal, uh, flying international air ambulance and. That was my experience prior to uh, coming to Air Canada. Awesome. And so now you're flying, uh, uh, how many passengers, what size of airplane do you fly now? So uh, so just a quick brief on, on the Air Canada time. I spent the majority of my time at Air Canada, about 13 of my almost 16 years on the Airbus 320, the narrow body. So in the uh, right seat and left seat. And now I'm on the uh, Boeing 777. So that's the believe it's the largest airliner in Canada and uh, in the high density configuration with Air Canada, you're looking at about 450 passengers. It's a lot of people. It's, yes. Okay. So you've, you've climbed your, your way through the ranks as any good, uh, any good pilot has to do. Uh, you you kind of took us around uh, your career path. And when was the first time that you ended up um, a captain on an airplane? And what was your biggest, um, I'd say, what was your biggest lesson when you got into that seat? Like, what was the, the number one thing that you started to realize when you started to be, um, you, you know, you're in control of an airplane? Take us through what it takes. Well, I, I think beyond, let's just say that uh, the technical capacity will provide that as a given. Um, a lot of people obviously have Right. If you haven't crashed, if you haven't crashed and, uh, you know, you're still here, then tech, technical uh, skills are, right, are there. Exactly. And in, in my humble opinion, I mean, I was the majority of my time prior to Air Canada was as a captain. So captain on uh, piston driven aircraft, multi-engine turbine and jet aircraft, small jet aircraft. And and then, of course, coming to Air Canada, you know, sitting as a first officer and then eventually as a captain as well. Uh, if we're going to draw it down to non-technical terms and, and just in my humble opinion of being a captain, I really, mm -hmm. I really believe it comes down to a high degree of personal responsibility and making tough decisions that the situation dictates, but it's hard to get in front of. And what I mean by that is there's so much momentum to, uh, an air operation, whether it be even on the smaller operations, it's very objective driven. And there's a lot of operational inertia that gets built up. And you need to have your technical expertise down pat, because that just assists you in your decision making. 
uh, when you do get into uh, tougher situations, not not due to any one particular issue, but it's just due to the fact that it's such a dynamic environment and things pop up that were never anticipated in planning said operation. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I know you know this, Kyle, it's, you know, whether it's weather or people or uh, ground transportation or logistics don't work out the way they're supposed to, or even <laughs> even silly things too, like, uh, you know, just the, the taxi from the hotel to the airport, who's to say, you know, you're not in a, stuck in a traffic jam and now you're, you're time limited or, uh, you know, God forbid that there's a, a, an accident on the highway or something on your way to the airport. Um, you're stuck in a snowstorm driving or you can't make it through a snowstorm and you're driving. There's just so many factors that can affect and bias um, that captain's decision making. And you always have to maintain a, a big picture. And, and sometimes you have to make the hard choice, which is not to, the hardest thing is not completing the mission really at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And then, and then explaining why based upon your professional opinion, why that was the correct decision in the interest of safety. Right. Yeah. That's uh, I think, I think that uh, talking about safety and then the dynamic side of aviation goes hand in hand with, you know, a lot of people and listening to this podcast and, and everyday life as well. Um, one of the most rapidly changing industries or, or uh, uh, jobs is, is aviation and being a pilot like Matt's talking about. Talk us through how you balance like that responsibility as a, as a leader uh, with your, your crew and your passengers. How do you, how do you balance, um, you know, whether you complete the mission and have to, or don't complete the mission because of safety and, like how do we how do you make those decisions and balance well well practically and again i'm not going to go down the technical road because everyone has access to the technicalities of the one two threes of how we process or running through various flow charts or these sorts of things there's rules there's guidelines there's there's um there's standards like we have all of those limitations but that doesn't always mean that you know just because it's right on the limit doesn't mean we should still go right. 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 And and also understanding the intentions of what some of those procedures and limitations are. And there and there are scenarios where there is as the captain for you to be able to insert your professional opinion as to whether or not it's the appropriate decision. There there are some scenarios too where um in the interest of, of safety and, and that always being maintained where there's conflicting or confounding information and then in the in the in the period where you have that conflicting information, you need to drill down, either get more information, or you can say, "Oh, look, it was uh, you know it was a sensor that is providing faulty information," and and get some backup as to what's going on. Um, when it comes to dealing with passengers and crew, I think we need to ever be mindful of um, just human beings and and their nature as such. And I include myself in this: is that we're all, uh, you know, we all have our own biases. We all have our own issues going on and, uh, and how to reduce the conflict that occurs between various people's objectives, motives, and incentives. And it's a very delicate dance and do, and every scenario dictates a different approach to how you do it. But I think uh, I'm always of the opinion that if you do it in a, thoughtful and respectful way 
and you make a rational uh, pitch as to why this decision is being made so that everyone can understand clearly, even in the moment if they're not happy with it, and I understand why, at least they can say, well, that was made in the collective best interest of the group. Right. Yeah, it's um, talk us through how when you're making those difficult decisions, um, how do you how do you prioritize like, you know, you're obviously talking about safety being the priority. How do you how would you specifically communicate that to a, to the passengers or to the crew? Is it like just talk us through a little bit more about that or what tools do you use to, to really help people understand that? you know, safety is the priority and that your, your decision-making isn't just, you, you said it, it's collaborative. It's not just, I'm, you're, you're not just going off of a whim, right? That is right? correct. And, and the other thing is too, is to be very clear and concise in communications with other parties, including uh, whether it be with your own company, with your own crew or with your passengers or ground handlers, et cetera once you have and you've developed your plan, and I'm not saying that the plan isn't adjusted according to whatever the situation dictates, but in terms of the communication of that plan to the various parties, uh, I've, I've seen where it's a great plan, but if it's not communicated in a timely manner to the correct party at the correct time, it, it can mm-hmm. become very, very awkward. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of one in terms of where time was, was of the essence, not because there wasn't a lot of time, uh, essentially got called out last minute, uh, on call on reserve, uh, for a flight summertime and, uh, passengers, uh, unbeknownst to us when we arrived at the plane, the passengers have been on the plane for a very, very long period of time in a very uncomfortable environment. So there you know, safety isn't necessarily the number one concern. Safety is taken care of. They're on the ground at the gate. Now, now comfort is the concern. And uh, mm-hmm. so the number one priority there was, okay, let's get, before we even get anything else done, let's make sure that they're taken care of. So whether that be uh, well, obviously air conditioning at that point or heat in the wintertime, you know, water, food, and, and just treat them as best you can. Then move back to the operations and get that ball rolling and explain to them why this scenario occurred. And, uh, and once you get past the why, uh, it, it really, it, everything changes because people start to realize what's actually transpiring. But when they're left in the dark and don't know, um, you know, everyone's mind is left to wander. However, it actually, we turned that situation around and yeah, it took a little longer than people had anticipated in their mind of, of what they wanted in terms of transportation time, but they were actually quite thankful at the end of it and quite comfortable. And um, that's just part of working in a dynamic environment that you need to uh, adjust your approach as necessary at times. So what are your priorities? Like, um, you know, you've talked a lot about safety and then you started talking about comfort. Uh, How do you prioritize like what it, specifically, well, what's your priorities? Well, I mean, on a corporate scale, it's, you know, it's safety, comfort and, and schedule essentially, but that that's easy to say. And it, uh, I, I would say on a personal level, my, my priority is uh, treating people with respect and inside of those other existing priorities and being uh, empathetic and mindful, trying to put myself in their shoes as to, 
what that situation feels like for them and then trying to be thoughtful in communicating a plan that executes um, on assisting them and then but also communicates not every time you can't be successful every time in, in making everyone happy but but mm-hmm. you can definitely be thoughtful as to how it impacts them what's the like aside from you know being thoughtful and we should all be good human beings what's the what is the main thing that you get out of that that specific what you were just talking us through like what what's the what's the goal what's the what's the why is that the priority for you what's the goal the the goal is well at the end of the day the goal is to make sure in a in a grand sense that people people can digest the truth um they might not like it but if you deliver it in a certain manner they're going to say you know what um i'm not happy that i didn't get to travel to x y or z but i do appreciate how you transmitted that information to me and i'm thankful that you know while i'm not happy about it i'm thankful that this decision was made because it was made in everyone's long-term interest and while while short-term objectives might not be attained uh everyone's long-term well-being is 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 always maintained right and so is that to is that to keep everybody happy is that to build trust is that to build like what's the goal of trying to keep everybody happy i guess well in the corporate sense is that you know i I would want to have returned passengers and and on a on a very basic level and i think on top of that in terms of professional responsibility i want to feel as though and i believe most the majority of pilots all pilots for that matter you know feel that sense of responsibility um, in doing that job and want to be able to put forward their best foot forward in uh, performing this service on behalf of the general traveling public. Does it make your job easier um, when, when, when you're communicating with, with passengers? I know, I guess like one, one thing that I just, I'll, I'll pop in and, and mention when I was uh, flying a captain as well, it, it, I, th- I found that the more time that we took to explain and to communicate with passengers, the easier my life was because, you know, we have, I have a, we have a crew of flight attendants uh, dealing with the passengers and we have this cockpit door that kind of separates us from the passengers nowadays. So the, the flight attendants get the grunt of, of everything. They get like all the good and the bad. So I found that if I took the time to explain the situation to the passengers, then the flight attendants, um, they were, they, they just had such, they had, they had better passengers, happier passengers. And then the flight attendants didn't have as much stress. Then the flight attendants also built that trust and respect for, for, for me as the captain. And so then they were a little bit like, you know, you had that, you had that bridge of communication all the time in case anything went wrong. Is, is that kind of as well what you found? Yes. And I would just add to that as well. Uh, it's a little trick. I got uh, from watching a, a Delta Airlines pilot, a more senior pilot in the United States, and we had, I was traveling as a passenger, and we had quite a lengthy delay, and it turned out it was a mechanical delay, and the captain came back into the cabin and actually made the announcement in the cabin, and for lengthier 
un more unusual delays. Uh, I sort of, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So I sort of stole that play out of his playbook. I thought, ah, that's a good idea. If we're in a really unusual situation where it's taking extra long and the people in the back are getting a little impatient, I'm going to go show my face, put a name to a face and add that humanity to the situation so they can look me in the eye, see that there's a human being that cares up front and making the decisions and that, you know, we're not just, uh, you know, providing excuses, we're actually taking action to correct the situation. It's funny you say that, Matt. Um, the moment I went captain, I, 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 do all, I did all my welcome announcements up until COVID, uh, all my welcome announcements uh, uh, standing in the aisle facing the passengers. And I found that that made such a huge difference for the flight attendants, for the passengers. They put a face to the name. It's not just, you know, some name up in the cockpit that's flying them around because obviously their lives are in our hands. Right. So, and I just found that the amount of, of trust. So then when things did go wrong, I found right away that I was already proactively building that trust with people and, and, yeah, it, it's funny that you you found the same thing, and and I that, that kind of leads me down a, a question: How important, on a scale of you know, one to, or maybe even a percentage? What a percentage of your job is communication when it comes to aviation? Oh, massive, massive amount. I mean, <laughs> and I know I know you know that, and I'm making a blinding statement, the obvious to you, but to the folks that are listening, uh, I mean, it is all communication, and. Uh, in the in the aviation environment, with uh, just with the two way uh, radio, I mean you've got to be. That's why we have the very specific phraseology. Um, it's it's so necessary to be very succinct and clear, and that that's in that's with native English speakers. If you go to foreign countries where they don't speak English very well, um, you have to put it in very very simple terms, sort of three to four words or less and uh and very simple words that in in regard to what your intentions are what you require um mm -hmm. and and on top of that as you know uh and maybe the folks listening don't know there's also a, a text system that is utilized on board airliners in the form of the a cars communication system and that's utilized a lot as well and the texting uh and it's not like, well, it's similar to texting on your phone, but it relates to operational issues. It's been around for some time. That has to be very specific as well. You know, the second that you are unclear or too casual or utilizing language that is not specific to aviation, um, it can get misconstrued very, very quickly. So I, I find in general, less is more and just be clear, direct and to the point. Um, but mm -hmm. yes, the communication is vital. So it, it's, everything. it's everything. It's and it and it's everything from ATC to interacting with the company to interacting with your customers to interacting with your crew to interacting with flight dispatch. It, it just goes on and on and on. Even even for that matter, with customs and immigration and security, um, everything in how you interact with other people. It, it's just so so critical yeah man um I, I i couldn't agree more i think that's uh i i asked the questions for the for the listeners for sure but i uh, i just want people to really understand 
you know, pilots are, are, we have the technical skills, uh, you know, you prove that through our testing and our, our practical examination, but there is a whole different level when you get into management and, and there's one thing that I don't know if this is true. Have you ever heard this map? But it, it takes like seven in, in the airlines. It takes something like 70 people to do their jobs for an airline to, you know, get going and push back and take off safely. Oh, I believe that. Uh, I'm not sure on the specific number, but I know it's large. And uh, it's got to be large, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's much more than uh, the folks that we see around the aircraft. I mean, just to put it in perspective alone, uh, just on board a fully loaded 777, you, most times you're going to have uh, 13, 14 uh, cabin crew in terms of flight attendants, and then you're potentially up to four pilots. So that's that's a lot of people right off right off the hop just directly operating the aircraft, not to mention all the folks doing the servicing on the aircraft, cleaning the aircraft, loading the aircraft, the gate attendants, the check-in attendants. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. How do you navigate a delay, like specifically in the communication side with uh, all the different departments? You know, if we're talking about, you know, we've got ground handlers, you've got dispatch, you've got maintenance, air traffic control, you know, maybe just for people, because again, I know this is a podcast about leadership and I, I think that this kind of goes hand in hand, but for people that are sitting on an airplane and don't really know much about what goes on, especially during delays, how do you, like, what are you dealing with as far as um, your communication and, and like how delays go? Because you so, don't know everything, right? Absolutely not. And actually, it's interesting that you said you don't know everything. That's exactly right. You're trying to make, no, that's exactly right. We, we don't know everything. It's uh, you're living in a dynamic environment with imperfect information and you're trying to do the best job possible with the tools available to achieve a desirable objective. And that is exactly the case. The other thing to, to take into account if people aren't aware is that when that aircraft is sitting on the gate, uh, the pilot, technically the aircraft is not in operation. The, the pilot is not operating the aircraft. The, technically the airline has control of that aircraft with the brakes set at the gate. So they determine when and where it moves. They, they can decide on a whim. Uh, they don't want that aircraft moving for any reason and that parking brake stays set and they can remove the pilots if they want. They can remove the flight attendants if they want. They could do a full full crew change. So again, so many variables that are going on, but I, I, think, I think where you're going at with the question in regard to imperfect information is that you wanna provide as much information as you can, but you also don't wanna mislead people or, or send them in a direction that uh, might not play out the way it actually is because you don't know that for certain. So I think a lot mm -hmm. of times when announcements are made or information is transmitted, it's sometimes, and I, I get it too, when I'm sitting in the back as a passenger, it is imperfect information and it, it comes off as being um, as if people are trying to bluff or just provide superficial information. But that's not the case. A lot of times it, it's not known. There's, there's other background communication going on between the crew and the company in terms of operations as to what actually is the issue at hand. And um, whether that be a delay due to a mechanical or paperwork or whatever it might be. Um, 
so all, all I would say is, is there is time to be patient. And but I think coming from the flight decks in terms of leadership, just providing that timely update, and then again putting the name to the face as you say, and and simply saying at this time we don't know, but we're we're delayed, and we'll update you when we can. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way of putting it, and I appreciate I appreciate your you explaining it. The when you're communicating, I think a lot of people think that you have to have specific details or truth or um but but you can also just communicate and let people know that you're you're doing your job right like it's it's and i maybe talk about this how many like you obviously don't know everything you're the captain of an airplane and there's all these different departments that have to do their job and i think you know it goes hand in hand with with running a business as well like you have to um, you have to have a hundred percent trust in everybody else's ability to do their job. How do you navigate that specific side of it? What happens if somebody doesn't do their job or, you know, how do you figure, how do you figure out if everybody is doing their job or is there any method, is there anything that you can do as a, as the leader of a, the ship to, to be able to make sure that everything is a hundred percent? Like, how do you figure that out? Well, in, in any complex operation, whether it be a business or flying an airplane or, you know, in working in an operating room, uh, we have to be uh, trusting, trust but verify. Uh, we have to be able to delegate authority and and certain uh, re- uh, responsibilities to other people. And usually uh, policies, procedures, you know, cover off those issues. But the little, the little subtlety to that I would say is that I mean the best way to know if you can trust someone is to extend them your trust and allow them to do their job and the other thing I think to understand is majority of people want to do the best job they possibly can no one most people Mm -hmm. don't go to work and say they might be having a bad day or there might be something contextual that interferes with their ability to make the best decision in the moment but I don't, I don't believe the majority of people set out to make bad decisions. It's just that's just not, it's not rational. So all that being said, also to be understanding that, and this plays into the trust but verify, it's not a personal issue if trust is delegated or, or responsibility is delegated and um, there's an undesirable outcome as a result of that. It's more, how do we find solutions to mitigate that issue? Or how do we mitigate that risk in the first place? And, mm-hmm. and again, depersonalize it uh, as the captain, take responsibility for it, even if it, you know, it, it, you're responsible for the entire ship. So, you know, represent your other, your other crew members and uh, come up with a desirable solution that works for the whole operation. And I think that that plays into leadership for any organization or team or group. Yeah, there's a saying, it's, uh, it might not be your fault, but it is your problem when it comes to being the leader of any anything, right? And and that's okay, because it's not about whose fault it is. It's like you said, like typically, if somebody makes a mistake, nobody has to go and tell them they made a mistake. They usually figure that out pretty quickly. Um, so then it's, focusing on that lesson, focusing on rectifying that mistake, focusing on, you know, how to mitigate and not make that mistake again. Um, 
how does that, what, what, what kind of tools or what kind of, what kind of things do you do specifically that you can speak to that help you to really help the people around you to mitigate their mistakes? Just dig into that a little bit more if you don't mind. Well, my humble opinion is discipline, but discipline in a way, and the, I mean, discipline in terms of the operating procedures and policies and and really sticking to the formality of, of that discipline. And mm-hmm. I don't mean doing that in a terse way where it's awkward. I mean, you can do all of these things with a smile in a professional way, and it actually builds confidence and performance in the overall group and you have much more desirable outcomes. I mean, if I come in as the, uh, as the leader in the group and I'm very terse and I'm dictating to people what to do and I'm belittling them. And when I'm, I'm checking on them, I'm not just checking. I'm, I'm basically undermining them or I'm not trusting them. Uh, now they're not working for the team anymore. They're not working towards the grand objective. They're, they're human beings. They're, they're going to be focused on not liking, uh, the person who's committing these behaviors. So really what we're trying to do is, you know, inspire good feeling. I mean, it sounds a little bit touchy feely, but inspire performance in the group in a, in a positive manner. And that's not to say, uh, that it's loosey goosey and that, uh, it, it's quite the opposite. Actually, that I think discipline in a positive and a discipline approach in a positive manner makes everyone better and makes them feel better about themselves because they're performing at a higher level. Empowering, yeah. right? You're, you're building, you're, you're building people's confidence and sense of control up, right? Nobody wants to not feel like they're in control. And, you know, so it's, at, there's a book I was just reading called the culture code. It just talks a lot about, like if you want to talk about motivation in a company or motivation in anybody's specific role, it's you have to empower them because internally people want to have a sense of control. They want to make decisions. They like even if people say, "Well, I don't want to make the decision," that's them still making the decision that they don't want to make the decision. But if somebody is in a leadership position, doesn't at least give them that chance to say whether they want to make the decision or not, then they're going to just pull that decision-making away from them. And they're going to feel that sense that that leader is just controlling anyways. So I think it's, yeah, the way you're speaking about it is super important. Um, what is, uh, what is like some of the other qualities that are essential for, let's specifically say to a, to a commercial airline captain, like what are some of the other leadership qualities that you say would be kind of up there and, and super important? Well, I, I would say that, you know, if you look to leadership and generally it, it gets drawn down to whether are you a functional leader or are you a positional leader? So functional leader, you know, you're leading by example. Um, it's very understated. You're not pulling rank on people. You're having, you're able to motivate them without, uh, basically uh, top-down type approach to instead of using your position of power right and then obviously positional leadership is is just the opposite of that now there are in particularly in the aviation environment um there are certain periods of time where you want to move back and forth between the two but i i would say the majority of the time you'd want to stay in the functional leadership environment unless 
safety or security or policy procedures and protocols dictate that you call rank and that you conduct uh, whatever has to be taken care of at that moment in time, whether it be some sort of uh, very specialized procedure that protects everybody. So yeah, I think I'll... I think that. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Kyle. Okay, uh, I was just gonna say I think that's a super important point to to drive home is that there's a time to collaborate and a time to command. It's one of the sayings that I've I have as well in leadership because, um, and and. I'll, I'll try to find a question here to ask, but speak to this uh, or, or add on to what I'm saying. The collaboration part of it builds that trust and that respect, and it allows people to choose to want to follow you, which when people choose to follow somebody, now they're inspired, right? And inspiration is one of the greatest senses of inter- intrinsic internal motivation. It gives people the the confidence it empowers. So people are going to make less mistakes. They're going to go above and beyond. They're going to, they're, they're going to want to do more. Um, but at the same time, every once in a while, and I'm going to ask you specifically, maybe a time or an example about this, but every once in a while, you you are the person in charge. You have to give direction, commands, uh, whatever, however you want to uh, describe it. But give us an example of, of like when is that time to give direction and leadership? And you know, as long as you've collaborated, as long as you've empowered these people, do people typically follow and trust and understand that that's kind of how it rolls? Or how do you how do you work with that? Right. And, and in the aviation environment, that is all trained uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it comes down to very specific communication, very specific. It's not as if it's made up on the fly. Uh, people understand what those communications mean. And then that automatically triggers certain actions and behaviors on behalf of the other individuals. So when it comes down to various emergencies on board the aircraft and, the, and these sorts of things, um, it's very, very specific. But I think if we move away from just the aviation environment, um, it's probably critical in other environments too to have you know very specific communications and actions and protocols developed as well. And I think the critical part we're talking about is sort of prioritizing what's what are critical events and what are critical actions, and then how are we going to address those in advance? So if and when they do occur, we're already prepared for it. And it really comes down to mm-hmm. preparation. And then it's then we're not just following the bouncing ball down the road. We actually know, well, maybe we don't want to follow that bouncing ball down the road. It's it's We're going to run into a car, right? So we need to be thoughtful about what we're doing, why we're doing, and how we're going to do it in advance of it actually occurring. So when it does occur, it's, it's yeah, it's not a a good thing, but we can, we can mitigate it and deal with it uh, as best we can. Yeah, I like the bouncing ball analogy. It's like, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just go run down the road at some point you'd make a conscious decision. Again, it depends how old you are and how old you are to learn this lesson, but you know, you'd stop at the sidewalk and you'd look both ways to see if there's a car coming and then you'd have to make a conscious decision to whether you're going to go chase that ball or not. So I think that's, yeah, that that's super important. Um, Checklists in aviation, obviously, there's lots of checklists, lots of procedures. Um, this is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm going to I'm going to ask it because there's a point to it. But how often do you follow the checklist? Always, and I'll, 
Always. Always. Why? I will, no, I will <laughs> tell you why. So I, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge checklist fan. I'm not saying that you don't look, we can, we can memorize the checklists, right? But we're all human beings. And the one time out of a hundred or a thousand, um, we're going to get distracted and we're not going to go through the discipline of going point by point. And to my point, uh, there's a book out called Checklist Manifesto by Dr. Atul Gawande. I love, love that oh, book. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And I mean, he dials it down to the fact where, look, you have all these great surgeons and really super intelligent people, yet one of the single largest uh, complications following medical procedures are, are, are infections due staff infections, exactly. right? Infections due to the fact of simply just hand washing. So yeah. even if it's just the checklist at the end, so you, you've been focused for, let's say four, eight, 12 hours on some complex procedure. And then all of that is for naught because you forgot to wash your hands at the end. That's because doctors are human beings too. And they're so focused on their, their doctor work. Uh, at some point they're getting fatigued and, and your consciousness drifts off. So it shows to go, it goes to show that, you know, the best of the best, um, we need, we need this checklist just to follow up and you probably have done it nine times out of 10 perfectly, but it's that one time when you're, there's certain human factors involved that, uh, you distract your attention. So, so the, do you think of the checklist as a, um, you know, I've had people talk, I've had people ask me that question. And then in, in the leadership side of stuff, working with entrepreneurs and business owners, uh, at some point I, f I find that there's, there's, there's the old mentality where writing things down or creating a checklist for these, like, you know, people think they're arbitrarily small things that are easy to, or simplified small things that are easy to memorize um, is kind of for people that don't have a high IQ. Why is it quite the opposite? The people with the high IQ or, or not even with a high IQ, but, but writing something down, having a checklist, even if for the simplest small things, why is that? And I guess you've kind of talked about it already, but why is it actually probably the smartest thing you can do? Um, and how does it help you even as a, like a business owner or in your personal life as well? Well, for, or how can first it? of all, let's just talk about, let's just forget about our egos, right? So it's not about I'm, I'm smarter than you and my dad can beat up your dad or whatever, right? It's, it's yeah. about, it's about getting the highest performance possible out of every situation. And, and that, if that's the objective and that's the goal, then we want to do whatever we can. And if there's a simple approach that even for doctors improves their performance, then I'm, I'm willing to adhere to that discipline to be thoughtful and try to achieve the highest performance possible. And it's such a simple thing to do. Why, why not? Why not? Do it? If we know, mm -hmm. if we know it's, it's scientifically proven to improve performance, then I'm, I'm secure enough to say, that's fine. I want to improve my performance. That's more important than me displaying to everyone that I can memorize a list of things to do. And yeah, I think nine times, nine times out of 10, I mean, it's not a do list either. Right. So, so mm. do whatever you do. And then it's just a, it's just a jog your memory to make sure all the critical items have been, have been touched on. 
yeah, they in aviation they say if you as long as you do the checklist, the lawyers can't get you. But <laughs> or but uh, I I think that the 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 other part of it is when you when you write things down just in general like in any any sort of writing of things down like uh tasks for the day or um to do lists whatever it's it it frees up your brain space and you don't have to like think you don't have to re try and remember right because when you every time you pull something up from memory or every time you try and remember something that's that requires a lot of extra thinking and even if if you have a high iq low iq it doesn't matter that all that precious thinking time is, is very precious, right? We want to spend that time being creative and, and evolve as opposed to try and keep bringing up things that are, are daily practices. Like you don't, you don't have to bring up, um, you know, your, you know, you put something in your calendar for a reason. So you don't have to, so you don't forget to go do that thing. So you don't have to remember it. So you don't have to, you can, if you spent, if you didn't have a calendar, you'd spend all your day just trying to remember what you had to do next and what time you had to do it at. And that would literally waste a lot of your creative thinking time. Um, so, so yeah, checklists. I, I, I think there was one, I think there's another book called my hospitals should fly, um, which is also very, very similar, just implementing specific procedures that airlines use. And, um, and, and the last piece that I'll speak to was in aviation, like it's, it's, it's do or die, right? Like you, you want to do everything you can to maximize that safety. So there's, there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no skirting around or, or cutting corners. Like, why would you, there's no incentive to do that because in aviation, you've got a metal tube that's running through the air and, you know, over the course of what, a hundred years now or a hundred and something years that we've had aviation, we've been studying it. And it's the one thing because we study it every single year, every single day, there's new procedures, there's new ways of saying things, going back to the communication, just to clarify it to, to, you know, maybe there's a word that we use that like they would literally change words in aviation based upon a statistic saying, oh, well, that word gets confused with this word sometimes, or maybe this word is more clear. Um, so can you speak to some of the significant changes that you've seen in the industry over the course of your career? And like, how do you adapt to these changes and how important it is, is it for you to adapt to these changes? Well, the first thing I would say is that in aviation, safety is not just good business. It's, it's the only <laughs> business, right? So, and I, and you hit, hit it, the nail on the head. It, there's so much focus on the minutia and how small actions can have large consequences. Um, I think in my time, uh, the biggest change was to the uh, recent change in the Canadian aviation regulations as it pertains to flight and duty times. And those were finally implemented in uh, 2020, but that there'd been work done on that for at least 12, 15 years prior. Um, thankfully they finally got, they finally got implemented and there's a scientific approach to the realities of being a human being and, and working in a 24 seven, uh, work environment. Um, that, that, those are massive, massive changes. Um, the United States did obviously did something similar back in 2009. Uh, they started that action. I think it was implemented around 2011 or so. And there was very uh, significant 
results and improvements. It's the safest aviation environment uh, in the world as a result. Um, mm-hmm. And that, and obviously, the United States has the most aircraft movements in the world as well. So, yeah, I, I think it goes to show that again, uh, small thoughtful actions can have large consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So, how do you, what do you, you know, how do you specifically adapt to those changes as they as they come out? Well, specifically in the aviation environment, I mean, you, you just have to say, like, look, uh, if safety is your number one priority, then uh, I'm willing to live, at, at, you know, on, a, on my own personal schedule. I'm willing to be respectful um, and adjust accordingly uh, to those regulations. And in the long term, uh, the short term, there could be some negative consequences for the individual uh, in regard to scheduling, et cetera. But in the long term, mm-hmm. the overall system risk is you know greatly greatly reduced and i i think in the long term too for the individual pilot i think i think their longevity will be extended on a personal level because they're just exposed to less uh fatigue stress on their bodies yeah and that's just speaking to the the flight duty regulations that you're you're speaking about what about like sop changes standard operas operating procedure changes uh language you know, changes in, in the communication, uh, checklist changes, stuff like that. How do you keep up with all of that? Well, that's a good point. And I, <laughs> I would say, and, and you know this, Kyle, I mean, as a result of technology, um, the change just comes faster and faster and faster to the point where you need, we're only human beings and you almost need to meter out the change or you need a change manager so that it can be put in to a human pace of change. Um, it's one thing to you make changes in a computer uh, and it's coming in fast and furious from all different directions. Um, the other thing is that sometimes speed doesn't necessarily always mean effective. And when changes can be made more quickly and easily, as opposed to having to reprint an entire book, you just pump it out in an email or a memo. Um, I think sometimes it doesn't give people that time, like maybe before I'm talking prior to the whole uh, computer system of, of updating people on information when it was actually paper and hard copy, there was a six month cooling off period after you came up with a, with a procedure change or a policy change. And you really got to mull that over. And in that time, maybe there were some unintended, unintended consequences that hadn't been anticipated, which are then over that six month cooling off, you go back and revisit and you go, Ooh, maybe we won't, print that or maybe we'll revisit that and adjust it um i just find now and it's probably not just in our aviation world i think in any industry technology is starting to push the envelope on the ability of humans to adjust uh because it's just there's i i just can't keep up with a computer that's it's too fast no matter how high performing you are and i don't mm-hmm. i don't know if that's it's necessarily the way to go either. I mean, I think you brought up a, a good point. It's about being thoughtful in your and and utilizing critical thought in order to move forward in a in a measured manner as opposed to just change for change's sake. How important is feedback for you, let's say for you and then for the company, for uh, your co-pilot, like how important is the feedback cycle in all of this? So now we're going back to the whole communication loop 
uh, piece. But what I would say to this too, and, and there's there's a two part to this. I mean, I think it's obviously it's critical, right? I, I think I think mm -hmm. that's a blinding statement, of the obvious. But I think also, I think it's important before things are implemented to you can't manage what you can't measure. So you have to decide in advance what are our metrics in terms of success, and and how are we going to measure those. Uh, you know, key performance indicators, and then where are our thresholds before you even engage in any activity? Because otherwise, it becomes again. I hate. I'll use the analogy again: the bouncing ball, right? And it it just becomes um, sort of word of mouth logic after a while. And and so, if the feedback comes back negative, do you go back and change it right away, or maybe that maybe the negative feedback is actually good because it means change is being implemented? I don't know, but. Um, I, th I think the the whole strategy needs to be thought out in advance and then to have those metrics to be able to measure the effectiveness of the strategy, not just simply people are going to push back on, on change period. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we need to be thoughtful before we implement any sort of change. How do you specifically deal with feedback on, you know, you as a captain or you as a, um, let's say, uh, you know, just again, the leader of, uh, of an airplane, how do you, how do you deal with it? Are you open to it? Are you, do you actively seek it? Is it, um, do you filter out certain feedback? Do you, do you take it all in? How does, how does it work for you? Um, my personal approach is to be, first of all, I think to be an effective values driven leader, um, you need to have, again, your set of standards set out in advance because you don't want to be led astray one way or the other. Like people can provide you with false praise and you actually might not be performing very highly. So you want to have your own barometer for that performance. And, and then likewise, you know, they might be criticizing you, but they don't understand the backside of what it means to be that professional. Right. So, you know, it, it, from the public's perspective, it's always the, you know, the very softest landing is the best landing. Yeah. And that's not, that's not necessarily the case in all scenarios. You know, you could have a contaminated runway with, with a heavy crosswind. Well, you want to make sure you make good contact with the runway and you specifically landed. I'm not saying a hard landing, but a firm landing to make sure that you ensure that the wheels are on the runway and that the brakes are engaged immediately in order to establish, you know, proper braking and proper control of the aircraft. That's just one example. And again, what it comes... I think people need to. So I, I think people really need to understand that one because it's funny you brought that up. When when you land, the soft landing doesn't necessarily mean the safest landing. Yes. It doesn't also like soft landings are great and they're great on nice days and you know and they're comfortable. But it's the more important part of landing is the stopping on the runway. So if there's any sort of uh, weather and um, like like Matt was saying, crosswinds, contamination on the runway, like slush, ice, any sort of uh, stuff like that, like you know, it's it's a pilot's responsibility to to get the airplane down by a certain point on the runway. And um, those airplanes are meant to take a, a shit kicking, for a lack of a better term. Um, so yeah, that feedback, you know, from passengers, and how do you deal with um, uh, or or I'm not sure what you're going to go into there, but how do you deal with that? How do you, you're, you're basically telling me that you have to filter it out, right? Right. And like, or filter out the good and the bad. Right. And, and not to be led astray by emotion one way or the other. I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of being a, 
a professional and being a leader. Again, establish establish your criteria in advance. Be a pro. Know your know your technical background, and then don't don't give way necessarily to feedback, whether it be positive or negative, um, without being thoughtful as how does that play into these criteria, and then do a uh, an honest self assessment as to whether what what needs to be fixed and it and it's okay like everyone's learning all the time it's a dynamic environment and you you can always be better right there's i still haven't reached perfection yet and i probably never will but i think the most important thing is the attitude to bring a positive attitude to the situation and and not not let your ego get too blown up when people give you positive uh, feedback and then not to get tear yourself down too hard when people give you negative feedback, but to take out, filter out the emotion in it, take the facts of the situation and then see how that plays into the overall big picture in terms of performance. Right. Yeah. That's so critical. Feedback is, is not about like for us as human beings in general, when we get feedback, depending on what the situation is, it's about that persona, that character that you're playing for that role. So if you're a pilot and you're getting feedback, it's about, you know, you as a pilot, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you as a human being. And that's where our ego gets involved, I think. So it's really separating that. And, and a question that I always like to use, and I think I talked about this on a, a previous podcast episode, but is it, it's, it's always, is it useful or not? Cause the, this whole idea of like good feedback and bad feedback is all subjective to who the feedback is about and whether it's useful or not. So if you want to take yourself out of kind of your ego or help yourself to take out of, out of that emotional response to feedback, ask yourself, is it, will this help me to accomplish my goals? Will this help me become better? Right. And, and now the negative and the positive kind of go away and it's like, okay, you know, it might've been construed as negative feedback before, but now I'm thinking, well, does this help me become a better human being? Can I learn from this or a better pilot or a better husband or a better wife or a better whatever it is? And then all of a sudden the emotions kind of less like taken out of it quite a bit. And you're like, oh, that can really help me. Actually, if I decide to look at that feedback as constructive, I'm going to learn this lesson and now I'm a better human being. So thank you for giving me that feedback. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well said. Uh, sweet, Matt. Well, uh, you know, uh, we're getting kind of near the end here. I really appreciate you coming on the the show. Um, any advice that you give to any aspiring pilots or um, leaders in general, and 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 both tech, like developing their technical skills and their leadership abilities? Any any aspiring words of advice? I mean, I think it's important uh, whenever you're getting into any technical career that you know you stay positive um, communication is important try and reach out to people in the industry and make contacts network uh, and don't get too put off by minor setbacks what early in your career might seem like a major setback later on when you have the uh, 36,000 foot perspective you know you, you think back and you think wow that that really wasn't that big a deal but I thought it was everything at the time and just to maintain sort of that purpose and that North star and just keep pushing in, in that direction. And, um, yeah, I, I think the positive attitude and 
and you just keep plugging away, I, I think that's that's really key, that resiliency. Yeah, all part of the all part of the process, right? I, I'm sure if I asked you, I, I know I had another pilot in this podcast already, um, and he talked about like some of the biggest failures, right? I say that in quotation marks in his career, and he literally failed out of out of school and went and started becoming an airplane mechanic. You know, he kept going, then he ended up graduating top of his class as airplane mechanic, and then he ended up getting back into aviation, and now he's a successful and and it wasn't that he was poor at being a pilot. It was there, there's just, there's so many things that are challenging. And for each one of us, as we're growing and as we're learning, we're going to, there's going to be things that we struggle with that maybe, you know, our husband or wife doesn't struggle with, or our colleagues don't, didn't struggle with, but that's okay because that's your struggle. And, and I think what Matt's alluding to here is just like, just keep going because that struggle is the process for you to, to be, be, to get to where you want. So think about the goal and then think about the feedback and just build on it. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's super important for, for people to really just keep understanding that, especially, uh, with the modern, modern technology, modern day of thinking, I, I think we're starting to really see a shift big time in, in leadership and in businesses and, and in attitude uh, in the general public. So awesome. Matt, any final words? Before we jump I, I just want to thank you for inviting me today. And it was uh, nice to talk to you and, and quite enjoyable. And uh, I hope your listeners uh, really enjoy your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I, I hope everybody finds a, a huge amount of value in this conversation and hopefully your next, uh, your next flight's a little bit calmer and, and you feel a little bit better about knowing a little bit more about how the, the pilots think and, and, uh, you know, until next time on uh, captain's mindset podcast, thanks again, Matt, and, uh, have a, have an awesome day. All the best Kyle. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Captain's Mindset Podcast. We hope you found value in our discussion of leadership and personal development. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Your feedback helps us improve the show and reach more listeners. Remember, everyone has the potential to be a leader in their own life. Keep working on developing a captain's mindset and leading with purpose and intention. Join us next time for more insights and tips on how to become the best version of yourself. And until then... Keep navigating through the ups and downs of your life with a captain's mindset and always steer towards becoming the best version of yourself. Become the captain of your own life.